welcome to the Operation Amigos podcast. This is Megan Jensen. And I'm Ryan Jensen. And this, again, we don't know what episode this is. We're not doing episodes anymore. So we're here for another episode and we're really excited. Today we have with us some friends of ours that we love and we are super excited that they're here. Justino Mora and Brooke Mora. Thank you for being here with us. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Justino and Brooke are married. They are, Justino is from Mexico. Brooke is from Utah. And they have a really cool story. Very interesting and also hard. There are lots of hard things that happened. And we're going to talk to them about kind of their, their history and how they came to be where they are today. And I'm really excited because the two of you are the first married couple that we've had on the Operation Amigos podcast. And like Megan said, I can't imagine a, a better couple to have um, here with us today. The first time I heard your story, and, and I shared this um, before the show, I thought that your story had the movings or the, the beginnings of a movie script. Um, you've got the beautiful young woman from a predominantly white middle-class neighborhood. I feel like I should read this in a movie voice. Do it. Do it. <laughs> we like it. <laughs> Who meets the handsome young man from a challenging upbringing in Mexico. Um, and, and, and how the two of you came together and what has happened since then. So I want to ask you to start the podcast off today. If your story were a movie, how would that movie start? Uh, when I was 13, I went to Mexico City on sort of like a foreign exchange sort of a situation. Um, and I spent the summer with a family there. And I had such an amazing experience with the youth in Mexico that I came home and told my family, I'm going to marry a Mexican. Wow. And I was 13 when I did that. And then I never saw a Mexican person again <laughs> <laughs> until... I was 21 in the mission field. Because you grew up here in Utah. Because I grew up in Utah and there were no Mexicans around. Mm -hmm. And I sort of forgot about it. But when Justino and I got engaged, an aunt of mine reminded me, you went to Mexico and said, when you came home, you'll marry a Mexican. And wow. I did. That's incredible that this started so far, so, so long before you actually met each other. Yeah, yes. it was a long time before we even met each other. Way long. And my mother, I still have this letter. It was, it's a long story, I'll make it short. But I, I was in a Spanish class at Centerville Junior High, and there was this NACEL program to go to Mexico City or Spain, and my mother had a cousin who had lived in Mexico city and she called and said, would you let your 13 year old daughter do this? And, uh, she said, absolutely not, <laughs> but I have friends that would receive her and take care of her. And I know that they're good people and she'd be safe with them. And so she sort of arranged the whole thing and it went really slick. And I had never driven before and, or driven, uh, flown before. It was the first time I'd ever been on an airplane. And I flew alone into Mexico City. Wow. Like, I think about that now. <laughs> I was nuts. My mother was nuts to let me do that. Um, however, uh, I got to Mexico City. I spent the whole summer there. The kids would come. I didn't speak any Spanish, like, at all. I mean, I thought I did. But, no, I did not. <laughs> I understood very little of what they said to me. They would all come... Um, and with their dictionaries and like really try to talk to me, they were overly welcoming and kind and made me feel so welcome, like a celebrity. Like I felt like a celebrity. I got whistled at everywhere I went in Mexico City <laughs> yeah. because I was this blonde girl. What do you think? What do you think? Yeah. And I, I was, I was in shock. Like I had no idea. And I came home saying that I wanted to marry a Mexican. And, uh, so that's, I think, where it all began for me, too. Wow. I love that. And, Justino, while this was happening in Brooks, you know, childhood or early young adulthood, what were you doing at that point? Um, I, um, I was about to finish with high school, and I remember I, I wanted to continue my education, but I, I couldn't continue my education, and 
my two of my brothers, <clears throat> I you know I come from a big family, a family of ten. Two of my brothers had emigrated to the United States in the early eighties. So one was actually fourteen or fifteen, Enrique, and Fernando was like nineteen, twenty, something like that. So <clears throat> about ten years later, I I talked to them and I said, I, I want to go work with you guys and I want to save money for my education because, you know, my father and my mother didn't really have the, uh, the means and the uh, income to support all of their children. So I remember how difficult it was for my mom and my dad to support just one, one of my brothers and one of my sisters out of ten. So I didn't want her to go through the same um, difficulties. So I, yeah, I came to America when I was 19. Wow. I think I got my drive license when I turned uh, 20 or 21, something like that. I, I had this. For the first time. Yeah, for the first time. Yeah. I was old enough to wow. uh, be able to, to drive and just reach that age, you know, where you can just kind of start going on your own. Be independent. <laughs> Be independent, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So that was in uh, 97, or 97 when I came to America. And I came alone. <laughs> so um, the whole way until I made it to Florida. <laughs> and your family was here. Your my, brothers my were brothers here waiting and, for you. Yeah, I, I was afraid that I would not find them. <laughs> Yeah. I was kind of like worried through the entire uh, trip that I, what if, they, what if I don't find them? What if they have moved to another place? Yeah. So it's kind of a little bit of worry about it. But I, I found them. I, I joined them. And, and what did um, you do when you first came here? Work, I, I picked up oranges. Um, I grew up in, um, <clears throat> in a small town in Mexico, in, in Veracruz. The state of Veracruz is a state that has a lot of oranges and uh, lemons. So I pick up oranges, grapefruits, lemons throughout the year. But my father, that's what my, my father did for his whole life. Wow. So he taught me to pick up oranges. Do you remember how much you made when you came oh, yeah. to the United States? Yeah, I think it was um, about 100 pesos, 150. Mm -hmm. Which is equal to about eight dollars an hour. Uh, Seven dollars a day. A day. A day. In, in Florida <clears throat> or in Mexico? No, Mexico. In Mexico. 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 Okay, so, so maybe seven or eight eight dollars a day in Mexico. Yeah, and you know when I did in Florida, I think I made about nine dollars um, an hour, which is you know I used to pick up like four hundred pounds, like big containers. Wow. And they pay us per container, so each, each container was like 400 pounds, and it took me like an hour, an hour and a half to, to fill it up. Oh, With, so uh, you were making a lot more. Yeah, I was making a lot more, yes. Yeah. I was making like $100, um, close to $100 a day, maybe 100 Compared with seven or eight. Yeah, compared to seven or eight. Wow. And when you compare the cost of living, <clears throat> because sometimes... Just seeing the number difference doesn't tell the whole story. Yeah. How much of a difference did it actually make you? Uh, at least a half. I would say a half because I, I did pay rent when, when I lived with my brothers. I helped them with rent and food, but I had at least a half to well, say. To yeah. Say, and yeah. I, I want to add like, <clears throat> uh, Justino's mother did not ever have a refrigerator or a stove until her children immigrated. She got those things because you emigrated. Because they emigrated. Money. And they, because my brothers. And, and they my, were working my, yeah. to support uh, My first two brothers, the family. They, they bought a refrigerator and a stove in the uh, early 90s, something like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the whole time. Yeah, and they, before that, wow. his mother cooked over a fire, a fire and had no refrigerator. So it was like, accumulate the food cook it and eat it mm -hmm. and there was just every day get what you need and then finish it that day because there's no way to, to store it. Right. Yeah. She would actually boil the food mm -hmm. to keep it good for the next day. Oh. And, uh, you know, after we 
old guy. Some some of it. Yeah. At the end of the day, she would boil it. I remember she would boil it with. Another thing that uh, surprised me when I was learning about Justino's history was the first time he slept in a bed was when he immigrated to the United States. They slept on what were they called? Yeah, I I was actually in high school when I I had a chance to sleep in a bed because my brothers had immigrated to the United mm-hmm. States so they were just leaving and the other ones were going to the university uh, one of them so I had a chance to kind of to finally sleep in a bed sleep in a bed but they could afford that because the brothers had immigrated and yeah. before that 10 children <laughs> slept on the floor on mats that they wove out of palm leaves right yeah yeah they were not re- yeah they were really thin mats yeah that were made in um, Puebla they have this yeah. And made it with by hand weaving kind of like the palm trees you know the palm trees um mm-hmm. yeah they just put it together yeah what uh, were they called um uh, petates. Petates. petates yeah wow so emigrating changed all of your lives not just those of you who came to the u.s but your family that stayed in mexico it changed their lives as well because you yeah. were able to help them and support them Yes, um, my brothers used to send money to us um, all these years that they live in America until, I mean, they, they send us money 20, 30 years. Wow. 20, 30 years to support us. And they, um, I mean, I, I owe them a lot. And uh, Enrique and, and Fernando, they, they forgot about themselves. and always thought about us and continue to support my father and my mom. That's amazing. So, yeah. So, I just wanted to ask, before we leave this section, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of assumptions that are not correct here about what it takes to come to this country, quote, legally. And so, I'm wondering... At that time when you came to the U.S., what would it have taken for you to come here legally? And would coming here legally have actually been a possibility for you? I have thought about that. I, I think there's only, there's only two ways to come to America, uh, the legal way. One is if, if one a company sponsors you and brings you to America, mm-hmm. which is not very... Common. And, and I want to add one. to that, sorry to interrupt. In order for the the visa to be granted, <clears throat> the company has to show or prove that there is no one in the United States that can do that. That can do that job. So mm-hmm. it's not like they can just be like, well, I really like this guy and he's mm-hmm. a hard worker. Mm-hmm. You have to come up with evidence that shows that this person is mm-hmm. not coming to take an American job. Like he is doing something that he is qualified. That's unique. Specifically uh-huh. to that person, which yeah. is not easy to do. No, not easy to do. Um, I do want to say that you know, throughout the years, that has changed a little bit. Um, nowadays, companies get um, uh, temporary visas to people that work picking up mm-hmm. tomatoes, picking mm-hmm. up oranges. Get kind you of know, a guest worker a, program. Yes, where they, they can give bring them, up. They have a special program for yeah. all these people. Yeah. Because not many people want to do that kind of a job. Mm-hmm. So they come for six months. But back in those days, in the 90s, there was not such a program as, as, as they are now. But to answer your question, that's just one way. And the second way is you have to have a fin- uh, financial life that very stable. It has to be very stable. What I mean by that is... You have to prove that you have a good position, with, with a job position, um, money safe, probably in the bank, own a home, um, own a home. Mm-hmm. like really prove that, you know, you're not going to stay in America. And yeah. I mean, not many people can really do can that. Can do that. Well, yeah. and for your family who didn't have a stove or exactly. refrigerator. Or beds for their Or family. beds for their children having thousands of dollars in a bank account just sitting there is not feasible no like yeah normally middle class to high classes the kind of people who who can come can to america come. with a tourist visa sure and yeah. he says tourist that's important that doesn't mean you have permission to work no here. it means you can come as a tourist you can come yeah. and visit and see but mm-hmm. you don't have permission to work right so really there was no legal path yeah for his family 
to do to do that in in that time period. Right. He his brothers got amnesty through Reagan, the ones who came first. Oh, okay. In 1986, I think yeah, it was. 85, 86. Something like that. Um, and those boys, I think about what they did. Enrique was 14. He wasn't even legal to work in this country. In this country like it yeah. was not even. He was not even a legal working age. Yeah. However, he was able to come and pick oranges, and dramatically. Um, improve the quality of life for his family in Mexico. Support himself sure. here and then still be able to send money. You know, and on both counts it was still meager by a lot of standards. Not However for them. But it was all it was dramatically better yeah. than what they were living living yeah. in. Um another story that Justino told me that I was floored and impressed with was in Mexico, you go. There's like two sessions of school. There's like morning school, mm-hmm. kids that go to school in the morning, and then kids that go to school in the afternoon. And he had to share shoes with his brother, who was just older than him. Be, be, uh, so one of them would go to the early morning school, and one of them would go to the afternoon school. And he would tell me how frustrated he would be if his brother didn't hurry home to give him the shoes, because they could only afford one pair of school shoes wow. when they were elementary school age. So very basic needs yes. were difficult to cover. That was junior high when I was in junior, junior high. high. He was in high school, so mm-hmm. he would hurry up and come come to our house um, one o'clock, one thirty, and I needed to be in the school by two o'clock. Mm-hmm. So barely enough time to yeah. change um, tennis shoes because you know it was sport. Mm-hmm. We have sports and we have to wear tennis shoes like twice a week. So we kind of like had a situation where I remember my brother Martin <clears throat> riding his bike and I would just ride on the bike so that I could make it. You know, he t- took me on a bike to like a 20 minute uh, ride mm-hmm. to make it to junior high because, you know, he was, he had to let me use his tennis shoes. Wow. And were those shoes said. too big for you? Um, a little bit. Yeah. We almost have the same size. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, we almost That's have the same great. size. He, him and I were only four years uh, different. Yeah. He's, uh, I think he's about four years um, older okay. than me. And yeah, almost the same size. Oh, that's good. That's a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. Well, I think that hearing that, for me, it makes me realize I have never had to go through that. No, I have never had no. to go through that. My own father came from Mexico, and he has a lot of the same stories Story. about having to either choose to eat lunch at school or take the bus home. He had to choose, you know, eat or walk four miles home, whatever it was. Um, he talks about shoes, too, you know, not being able to afford just the basic necessities and how he felt how am I ever going to have a family and support a family if I can't buy myself a pair of shoes? That was his motivation to go because he felt like he would never be able to provide for a family. And another thing that my mother used to do when we, she fed like 10 of us or eight, which ever many were still at home, she used to cook and um, with wood and serve a meal that didn't have enough pieces of chicken. So if there was a, like a chicken soup, you know, in Mexico we eat and, and thighs, legs, and all these different pieces of the chicken. So she would just have barely enough for us to have one piece. You know, you couldn't just say, hey, mom, I want a, another piece of the you know, chicken yeah. and just have one piece. That was it. That was it. Yeah. And sometimes there was not even enough for her. So I remember... That she would just really, you know, wait until kids were fed and, you know, if she had one or not. My younger brother, Moises, used to eat my piece of the chicken and I remember he used to be he so, would steal it. so mad at him. <laughs> <laughs> he would eat two instead of one and I remember just getting so mad at my brother. Wow. <laughs> doing that. <laughs> wow. Brooke, in contrast, what was your childhood like? Nothing like this. I mean... <clears throat> I was the only girl. I always had my own room. My mother's a seamstress. Like, I think about the drapes that were in my bedroom growing up. Yeah. Um, 
that were yards and yards and yards of ruffles and, uh, you know, the matching bedspread and the pillows and the, I mean, things that I didn't even know were luxuries. Yeah. They were just normal. One of the things that, one of my first like shocking moments when I went to Mexico was things that I thought were like baseline necessities. I found out were actual incredible luxuries, mm-hmm. like a washing machine, um, like water, hot, hot water. water, holy yes. crap, hot water <laughs> and hot water. We were in the tropics. We started in Veracruz. So I wasn't like heartbroken that I, it was a cold shower because it was, <laughs> Cause it was warm, hell hot. I was always sweating. <laughs> um, but also like climate control. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't know. We had, we took our nine month old baby. It was nine months and we went to Mexico and, uh, I did baby wise when she was born and it was the That's sleep. what we did too. <laughs> yeah. The sleep program. Right. And she slept in a perfectly dark room with the perfect temperature at the perfect mm-hmm. time of day in perfect silence because she was in the basement of our home where there was no noise and we could all be upstairs and she was downstairs. And at nine months I took her into hot. When we first got there, she didn't even have a crib. Like she slept in the bed with us. Yeah. And everyone was screaming outside like basura. Mango. Chileno. Like whatever they were selling down the street. Like uh-huh. I mean, and it was so hot. Uh it was so noisy. It was so bright. It was so like nothing that she was sleep trained. Um and I remember like saying to Hustino we have to get an air conditioning unit for this window. And it was super expensive. We had a little bit of savings and he was like, are we really going to use half our savings for an air conditioning unit? And I was like, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. This is not negotiable. (laughs) I am sorry that I am so weak, but this is the reality of like, I didn't grow up ever thinking, will there be enough food? I never, ever thought, can I have it? I mean, you never had to share your shoes with your siblings? Never. Yeah. No, I never had to share a bathroom with my siblings. Oh, wow. I was, I had three younger brothers. I was yeah. like a little princess in my house. Yeah. I didn't even know I was the little princess in my house. I mean, that's just how, what you knew. That's just that's what that's I the knew. Life like, you knew. I didn't have to share a bedroom or a bathroom most of my life. Yeah. And, um, and I had this fancy day bed. I mean, I remember when my mom and I shopped for that day bed and I, and I mean, my mother's a deal hunter. I think we probably bought it on KSL, but mm-hmm. it was still beautiful yeah. and it was still, you know, and she made the drapes and the bedspread and the pillows and the, and everything that went with it. And wow. And I, I mean, we were middle-class. It wasn't like yeah. I came from big money at all, mm-hmm. but I never, I mean, we had a drastically different childhood. Right. For, pe- for people who are listening outside of the Utah area, KSL is like Craigslist. Yeah. So, it's a yeah. classified, yeah. Yeah. like when you're selling stuff. Yeah. So, so each of you coming from such different, drastically different backgrounds, what was it like when you met? Where did you meet? First, tell us where you met. What were the circumstances? Do you want me to tell that story? No, I want to say the story. <laughs> he's going to tell it the right you way is what he's thinking. Say it the right yeah, way. Don't to tell our story. Yeah. You don't say it the right way and I really get tired of that. <laughs> okay, you tell us. Um, I'll correct you. When you I, I, <laughs> I actually, after I had the dream to study, in between that, my mother got ill, got cancer in, so we, I used my little savings to help her through the chemotherapies and all the, the expenses that we had to go through, and I, um, I kind of ran out of money, so I put my education um, second, and then in between that, we met, uh, I met some missionaries, and I became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so that was when I was like 21, 22, <clears throat> and I, I waited one year and I decided to serve a mission. 
so I, I went on a mission from Florida to um, Minnesota. But I remember... <laughs> what a huge yeah, difference. That, that was a big change. Yeah. So the first time I saw the snow, I was, uh, I was on a mission. I was on wow. my mission in Minnesota. I was in um, 1999, the end of 1999. And I thought it was amazing. I just saw the snow coming from the from the skies and it was amazing. I, I saw it through my window in the little apartment where I I was living with a mission companion. So I um I met Brooke. She she uh, served in, in, in our mission and I remember <clears throat> we were really united because um the Spanish speaking missionaries there was not that many. There was only six elders and four sisters. So we gathered together every um, Monday and cooked together and, you know, have a little preparation day. Uh, Talk about together. what's going on yeah, in the mission yeah, and what your experiences <laughs> are together. To, that was our, our break to do our own stuff. So I met her and um, obviously I didn't have any feelings like romantic feelings for yeah. her because, you know, we were missionaries. We were just focusing right. on, on preaching uh, the gospel. So after I saw the mission is when I actually called her and had a little, had a little, um, what, what would I call it, a flirt <laughs> conversation, a little flirty. Yeah. Then um, I moved to Utah from, from Florida and that was kind of like when everything started. Did you she move here to, for Brooke? Or for the um, snow? Well, <laughs> I, uh, I felt that I needed to move and I wanted to know Brooke more. We, yeah. We've been chatting and uh, talking on the phone for like six months. She actually came, came to see me in, in Florida um, two months after. It, just right it after was October. Mission, October. And, I, and then he moved to Utah May, May, April. May oh, end of April or May. Yeah, yeah. May. April. So that's kind of like how Short, the short version of... <laughs> what do you have to add, Brooke? What do you have to add that maybe wasn't quite how you remember it? No, I think he did pretty good. <laughs> okay. I think that um, another important piece of... I, I was able to observe him. I was thinking about... Uh, like I've And I've thought lots of times, would we have ever met... I don't know that we ever would have. Yeah. Like, I don't think that our paths would have ever crossed. And even if they did, like, let's say he, you know, moved to Centerville or mm -hmm. I moved to Florida. We didn't have really any common ground except for our religion. Yeah. And because we served, there was only one congregation of Spanish-speaking members of the church in many, it was in Minneapolis, and um, so all ten of us, all ten missionaries, attended. You know that ward, and as a result, we got to know each other pretty well. We worked pretty closely together. The ten of us were responsible for twenty-five percent of the entire mission's baptism, which wow. speaks more of the humility <laughs> and the people. goodness of the Latin people. The, wow. the fantastic missionaries that we were, because <laughs> I don't really think it was us. But we were, the demographic that we taught, they were eager and, um, you know, they wanted to be baptized. So we had a lot of baptisms, and we worked really close together to do that. And I was able to observe the kind of person that he was. Is I mean, yeah. I saw in him then what a hard worker he was, how kind he was how he took care of other people. Um, my parents divorced. I was a little bit jaded. I sort of thought like, you know, men are nice to women for one reason, because they're after one thing. Uh, I met him as a missionary when that one thing was off the table. Yeah. And he was remarkable. It was just friends. I think that's the the basic of any yeah, relationship. Yeah, I be mean, friends first. Be friends, right? And we were just friends. We were missionaries. I mean, we were not. Mm -hmm. There was nothing any, else any, possible. Yeah, yeah. Any, yeah. So I think that I think that because of that environment, first of all, I gave myself an opportunity to get to know him. I mean, actually, I didn't give it to myself. It presented itself <laughs> in my life. 
and I'm ashamed to say, I don't know that I would have done that otherwise before my mission, before I really, um, had an opportunity to, I mean, maybe I would have, I really had a good experience as a youth, uh, when I was 13. However, uh, our lives were so dramatically different, um, that I don't know that I would have, I don't know that we would have interacted and to a point that I could have really understood his goodness. But because I did, obviously, um, that was very attractive to me. And when yeah. he called me after his mission, um, and said to me, hello, my little piece of children. <laughs> <laughs> in Spanish, right? No, no. Oh, in, in English. In English. And I was actually, this is a funny story. I was a pianist for a juggler. Like that oh. was this random side job that I had right after my mission. He like juggled for elementary schools and I played the piano for the juggler. <laughs> and I was sort of interested in the juggler and he was sort of interested in me, but we were really sort of shy and nobody was making any moves, but I didn't want to take it off the table. And he says that to me and I'm sitting there rehearsing with the juggler. So I'm like, can I call you back? <laughs> anyway, it was funny. But he called me and invited me to visit him in Florida. And I did. And we had a great time. And then we talked on the phone. And then we kind of broke up because he said, I'm going back to my country. And I was like, well, I'm never going to your country. Oh, wow. Funny how that works out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we will get to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then he moved to Utah and then we really started dating more seriously. And you know, how so. long did it take for you to get married? A little how long bit. did you, yeah. a long time. <laughs> wow. And at the time I was sure quick, like he moved to Utah in May by August. I was all in Wow. like, I, I mean, I, I knew fast. I'm sort of that way. Uh, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I think he had a broader picture a better understanding mm. of the difference between our cultures and the reality of his legal status yeah. that I had no idea what I was doing with. Like, yeah. no idea. I mean, I was, you know. You're I, kind of oblivious. To, oblivious yeah. is a perfect word. And, um, and at that time, I, I had some frustrations because I remember that you know, after picking up oranges, after working in um, construction and doing a lot of labor, I had some dreams. I, I wanted to study. I wanted to gain education, more education than what I had. So I I was always limited. I always felt like, you know, I, I hit the wall. I couldn't apply for certain jobs. I couldn't have this or go to this school because of the legal stuff. So I was a, yeah. a little bit for a lot of I had some processions back then and we were dating and that all um so probably the first year of man and being married, second year. Yeah, and <clears throat> um something that I'll say about Justino is he is progressive. He wants to be progressive. As long as I've known him, he's always looking for a way to like better himself learn more. He has a high value of education. Um, this is something else that I've always been so impressed with. His mother used to be so proud of him because he'd get these great grades in school. And on the weekends, his father wanted him to work and pick oranges. And it was an absolute luxury for him not to go to work to support his family, to stay home and study and do his, to do his schoolwork. Yeah. And so he's always had a high value of education and he's always learning and he's always reading and he's always going forward and he's smart. He comes, he, he learns things fast. He's a quick learner. And I watched, I watched him for years, um, with so many things, learn something and then get to the place where he needed to be licensed or, uh, I can remember a CDL license. Oh, can't get a CDL license. Don't have the papers mm. for that. I remember real estate. That was a similar thing. I watched him progress. When I met Hustino, he didn't speak English. Like the first time I ever laid eyes on him, he didn't no speak English. English. Yeah. 
I don't speak Spanish very well. <laughs> but he learned English. His English is continually always getting so much better. Um, but he was always going for it. And he just kept hitting this wall, hitting this wall, hitting this wall. And I was always astonished at his um, determination. Like, okay, that didn't work. Next. That didn't work. Next. Wow. I mean, I grew up, it was like a punishment to do your homework on the weekends. Yeah. It was like, yep. you want you me to be out playing, you want to be out hanging out with your fun. friends. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as a teenager, I was seeking entertainment and he, and he was aspiring to study, wow. which, um, I mean, says a lot about him, mm -hmm. but also is another drastic difference in the way that we were raised just because, I mean... When you have everything and you don't have to worry about anything, yeah, yeah. you don't, you don't value, um, what an opportunity it is to get an education. Right. And he valued that, yeah. which was always impressive to you. That's another thing you and my dad have in common is his mom would not let him quit school. She was a school teacher. And he had friends that would drop out to go work to support their families, yeah. to help support their families. And she would not let him. She she knew the value of education and made him stay in school. And I feel like that's a gift when when you have someone that will push you and say, no, education is a gift. And I, I feel like that's one of the biggest things about people in Mexico It is just the work ethic that comes with them across the border. It's... Yeah. I mean, they are hard, hard workers yes. because they know the value of their work here compared to where they're coming from. It's so drastically different. And it's beaten into them because yeah. um, nothing is easy in Mexico. Right. I mean, he carried water. Mm -hmm. He, uh, his mother washed, she'd walk 20 minutes with laundry for 10 children to wash in the river. Wow. I mean, and that wasn't. Uh, anything more than I, this is my reality. Like these kids need clean clothes yeah. and that river is free water. And yep. I don't have a washing machine. I don't have mm -hmm. the run, the wells empty. They had a well at their house. Every summer we get empty. Oh. So we would have to walk, walk to, the river. to gather water, the river to drink, or, to cook with, or, to... or walk with a bucket of, uh, 20 liters, um, to, the neighborhood that had actually drinking water and yeah. just opened the, the faucet mm -hmm. and used to ask them permission to get some water from their from their house and carry that water to our house another 10, 15 minutes at least. I mean, they developed a you, you develop a work ethic when you have to carry your drinking water. When you have to do those things yeah. to survive. Yeah. yeah. That's so drastic. I mean, so drastically different from... From what you were used to growing up. Yeah. 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 Ryan, I feel like I'm dominating over here. Do you want to talk? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I love talking to you guys. This, I mean, it's a fascinating subject, especially for someone who doesn't, who may not have ever heard about these things. I think that's the thing. Like, <laughs> I already knew how much you guys had been through. And yet, I didn't know anything that you talked about so far. And, <laughs> and we haven't even gotten to. We haven't I even know. gotten to. So yeah. I'm, so I'm sitting here just. Uh, <laughs> and I think that one of the, I think now is a good time to bring up before before we get to that next stage. Um, it's not just a matter of Justino. This was the situation that your family was in. Oh no. But, not just his family. No. Yeah, my whole neighborhood was the same situation. Mm -hmm. Like I remember I used to play soccer on the street with our shoes and on a gravel road and my friends were the same. Yeah. With the same. It's just normal. Yeah. Normal. Yeah. Normal. Same life. Yeah. yeah. Some of them might have alcohol on top of this, you know, a father that had drinking problems and stuff like that. I was kinda like maybe could be one of the differences, but they were dealing with the same. So maybe even in the situation you were in, you could think, "Hey, it could be worse." Yeah, it could be worse. Yeah. So, so I think that's part of why 
Uh, I've, I've just you're speechless. Because, well, there's nothing. There's just nothing that I have in my life that compares to what you're talking about. And and it can be so easy to judge someone who makes decisions based on their life experience, and we judge them because we don't understand why they make the decision they've made. Not because we're right and they're wrong, or they're right and we're wrong, but because we just don't know what that situation is like. Yeah. And you can never say, if I were in that situation, I would never. Like, guarantee you just that don't is know. The, the most impossible thing. to. You can try to put yourself in someone else's shoes, but to try to judge uh, what, what you would, you would do, yeah. and mm-hmm. and what what integrity means at that point is is such a judgment call and uh, to hear about the i mean the, the work ethic and what you were talking about with your brothers and the sacrifices that they were making and to be 14 years old and make the decision of i don't want my little brother to have to keep switching shoes with me so i'm gonna go make this sacrifice so that i can try to make his life better and my mom's life better, and everyone who comes after us in this life better. Um, that's that's such a selfless and and long term look at life and and legacy, and it's really inspiring. Yeah. You know what you just said, Ryan? You just said something so important because for me, like I can't make a judgment on someone who has drinking problems because I don't know what that would be like, I mean, I never had any drinking problems, so something so traumatic or, or something happened so horrible to this person that he, he made those decisions. Um, right. Or someone who is under some terrible depression um, situation, I, I can't understand that because, you know, I I never went through something like that, so I, I guess it's as human, something so, so easy to judge, but it's so hard to try to understand where they're coming from mm-hmm. before we make an assumption and you know we assume that we know yeah. the whole picture but we don't but we don't we really yeah. don't no but i've watched lots of movies <laughs> that's exactly yes. what it is if yeah. you've seen that movie then you know what it's like well that's like oh. people used to say to me when i was about to marry his you know are you worried about the cultural difference and i would be like oh, no I speak Spanish. I love tacos. Like, what are you talking about? There's going to be no problem. Like, I've got this. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yes. I had no, you had no idea. idea. Yep. Justino said something to me last week that I think kind of goes right along with this. Um, I hope that I can make the connection. But our kids had a soccer tournament in St. George. I was tired. I didn't want to go. He loves soccer. I didn't want to make the drive. All these things, right? So he says he's going to take the boys. I'm going to stay home with our one daughter. And um, he gets sick. He gets this little head cold. He still goes. He has this, like, marathon weekend. He comes home. He's still sick. Um, I can't remember what I needed him to do. He did it, like... And I said something to him like, oh, I'm so grateful for you. Like, you're doing this hard thing and you did this and I didn't have to go. Like, I got to have this, like, recharge weekend because I was just with my 13-year-old daughter and I stayed home. And now you're serving me and doing something for the family. And you're sick on top of all of it. And he kind of laughed like, ha ha, Mika. It's because I'm a red blood and you're a blue blood. <laughs> and the red bloods, they work hard. And the blue bloods, they need to have a little more rest. And he didn't say it from a place of like judgment or criticism. Yeah. It was all in good fun. Yes. And, but the truth of it is, is ladies and gentlemen, he is a red blood. And I am a blue blood. Yeah. And I don't have the stamina mm-hmm. or the work ethic. I mean, I'm a hard worker. I am. Yeah. But I am it's weak not the same. sauce compared 
compared to, to my red blood husband right here. Well, I yeah. say I'm a Mexican donkey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Mexican donkey don't really pay to pray. Yeah, you're used to working <laughs> and to working one, hard. You see that they're yeah. always carrying something. Yeah, yeah. So he was joking, but not joking. <laughs> but it's not the joking. Truth. It's like it's the, the truth. It's like the truth. But he yeah. just said it in like a humorous way, and I was just like, yeah. yeah. Honestly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I learned that I can only tease my wife like that. Like, I don't think I would ever nap. say yeah. anybody, but yeah, that's kind of nice. So, so let's get to the rude awakening that you're about to have in your life here. You guys got married. Yes. And then you... We got married in 2004 in January. We immediately... Had the happily ever after. Yeah. And that was it. Story over. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> like we said, the movies. The movies. So great. Um, we got married in 2004. We immediately applied for his adjustment of status. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no doubt that I was just going to, that it was just going to come down the it line. Would be easy. That it would be easy. Um, it was like a process that kind of looked like fill out this form and pay $600. Fill out this form and send five hundred dollars. Fill out this form. Nowadays, everybody does it on internet. Mm-hmm. Then it was still mail, so mm-hmm. I would like watch the mail. And um, Hustino had progressed through some construction jobs, had taken a leap right before we got married, left construction, and was doing property management. Um, so we lived in Sugar House in Salt Lake City. Um, he managed. This apartment complex where we work, where he, where we lived, he worked there. He was the apartment manager, and we lived there. And you know, I worked as a dispatch telephone uh, person at Primary Children's Hospital, and we were this little newly married couple. And I just thought, like, it'll be fine. Like everything will be just fine. But it took um, until two thousand seven, so f- three. Years. So hold on. So in 2004, when you filed, were you expecting like we send you a check, we fill out these forms, and you get a, your green card weeks. in a couple weeks? Well, I, I don't know what the. I mean, I I I maybe expected. I didn't. I didn't think it was going to be weeks. I thought it might be a year. Yeah. But like, I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. Like, I thought like it's just a step by step process. Like it's pretty straightforward. You start with this form and you do this money. Then they give you a response and ask for the next form and this amount of money. Um, by the time we got an appointment, um, for his green card, we were probably five grand in. Oh my goodness. It's quite a bit of money. The other thing that I don't think people realize is how much it costs. Big (laughs) funds. Okay. And this is almost 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, and this is oh, yeah. So yeah, it's more now. Yeah, so it's more now. Um, but we got the appointment. The appointment was in Ciudad Juarez. Um, I was expecting to go to the meeting and have him walk out with a green card. Yeah, I'm an American citizen. I chose an amazing man to marry and be the father of my children. Mm-hmm. It is my right. This is how I felt and thought yeah. that he have legal status in this country. Um, like, why wouldn't that happen? Um, just before we went, his family, who had a little more experience with this, one of his brothers, um, I think they had to be in Mexico like four months or something, and I remember thinking, like, four months? Like, uh uh-uh. I am not going to live in Mexico for four months. Spoiler alert, ladies and gentlemen, I lived in Mexico for 12 years. Okay, I was so ignorant. I had no idea what was happening. Well, let's go back to the day, February 7th, uh, 1990, no, 2007, sorry. Uh, We go to the consulate in Ciudad Juarez, I'm in a sweater set, a linen skirt, heels, and hose, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, They have sent us a letter that says, like, maybe be a little careful in Ciudad Juarez because it's kind of a war zone, (laughs) especially at that time. It's Mm -hmm. better now, I think, but it was terrible then. And uh, 
I walk up to the door of the consulate. There's two guards, American guards, with big guns at the door. They say, you're going to wait outside. Justino hands me a 50 peso bill, which is you know about $5 at that time, and says, go back to the hotel. Um, and the guard says, no, you stand on the sidewalk across the street. We might need you. I stood in the sun, in my hose, in my heels, in my sweater set, in my fancy little, like I was in, I was about to walk in there and be like, hi, I'm from, um, you know, Utah. middle America. I'm an American I'm an citizen. American citizen and I have a college education and... And this is my husband. And this is my husband, so like, we'd hurry. Like to, we'd like to go live our life. <laughs> so, chop, chop. <laughs> I mean, so ignorant. Okay. Uh, I stand on the sidewalk for eight hours. <gasps> okay. This woman, I wish I would have had her name. Oh, if you're listening, contact me. I'm serious. Um, she is an American. It's her third rodeo. She shows up with a folding chair, which that would have been nice. Um, she shows up with a folding chair. She's in sweats. Like, she's just she like. She knew. She knew what was going to happen. She's camping out, okay? And I'm, like, talking to her, and it's the first time that it ever crossed my mind that it might not go like I wanted it to. Yeah. And she's like, oh, this is my third time. Like, if we don't get it today, we're never getting it. And, like, I was like, what? And I'm thinking, she must pick the wrong guy. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it was the first time my, my mind opened a sliver. Like, maybe this isn't going to work. But it was. Like, obviously. <laughs> so, Justina walks out of the consulate. After eight hours. After eight hours. Like, I should have taken a picture of myself. Did you sit down at any point? Did you just sit on the sidewalk? Did you? No, I think I stood You up. stood for eight hours. I stood for eight in hours. In your high it heels. Was, it was my fancy skirt. I wasn't going to sit down. <laughs> like, and I kept thinking, like, any minute they're going to ask me yeah, to walk in and yeah. just authorize this. I mean, I'm a little bit arrogant, you guys. I'm really sorry. I'm being really transparent about that because I think that in the center of a lot of us as Americans, yeah. we think that we're all that sort yes. of. Well, I, we do. We think we're the center of the universe mm -hmm. and everything revolves around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I stand out there, he walks out and his face is green. Like, I'm like, not kidding. Like I could see from across the street that there was something very wrong, which is why I didn't get that lady's name because he walks out, he like signals to me. He pulls me into a taxi. I'm like, what happened? What happened? What happened? And he's just like, I'll tell you when we get back to the hotel. I'm like, no, you know, and he, but he is, I mean, fallen. Like his countenance was just ash and mm -hmm. sort of green. Yeah. <laughs> um, he knew it was bad news. He'd gotten a 10 year ban. Um, <sighs> so tell everybody what that means. That means that he's banned from entering the United States for 10 years. What I learned later was it's common, like it's law after 9-11 to, if you've entered illegally ever, mm -hmm. then you get the 10-year ban. But then there was the 601 appeal that most people did, like his brother and sister-in-law. And, you know, I basically write a letter that says, he's my provider. We have this nine-month-old baby. We're both American citizens. Um, so will you please appeal the decision mm -hmm. based on my hardship as an American? Right. However, um, and this, like, okay, so he crossed twice mm -hmm. and I, and I told the truth about that on the paperwork and I didn't need to because he'd never been caught. But I'm also, apart from being ignorant and thinking that I'm the center of the universe, I'm also raised to be honest. Right. I'm also raised to be a patriot who believes that my country has got my back if I do my duty, which is honesty, right. which is good citizen, which is, and so I told the truth mm -hmm. on those paperwork, on that paperwork. And then when I saw that we were in trouble, that he got a 10 year ban with no eligibility for the appeal, I contacted Senator Hatt and I have to say his staff worked fearlessly for me for 10 years. Wow. They were unsuscessful. However, they did they work worked. very, they worked hard for us. 
Wow. But the first thing one of his staff said to me was, I wish you would have contacted me first so I could tell you what truth to withhold. Oh. And I was like, what? What? Uh, first oh. of all, I'm not a withhold the truth kind of girl. First of all. Second of all, this is not the country that I, that's not the flag that I pledge allegiance to. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? The truth that I should have withheld. Yeah. And then I'm further infuriated because my husband at this point speaks fluent English, has a college degree, and for that reason had a 45-minute conversation with the consular officer that many others in that situation could not would do not have been because able to have. they don't have the education or the English. They don't have the drive and all of the things that make him such an amazing individual and the, and those are the people we want in this country. Yeah. Like, we don't just need the orange pickers, and I'm not putting them down because we need them too. Right. But a lot of and them... And he had been one. And yes, he had been And one. he had paid his but diligence his father, doing that. when his brother uh, applied for his father, his father who spoke no English, they asked him two questions in Spanish, and that was his interview. And he was admitted. And he had, and he got his green card. And wow. we're glad. We're glad grandpa's yes. here. That's awesome. Yeah. However, it made it super irritating to me that because of his education, yeah. he understood the consular officer when she said, did you cross twice? And he told the truth he because the he's, truth. A tr he's a truth teller. But because of his education, because of his progressive nature, mm -hmm. um, it was, it was held against him. Yeah. And then I appealed to the attorney general after that, and I had to create a hardship for the American citizens. Mm -hmm. And my first hardship, well, the first thing that the, that the uh, senator's officer, officer told me was, don't tell them you speak Spanish, mm -hmm. even though I was fluent-ish yeah. at that time. And don't tell them that you speak Spanish. Don't mention your college education. Like, I look at those things as a badge of honor. I look at those things as hard things that I've achieved. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, that's like, no, 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 no. You need to put the victim face on, and you need to tell them that you're completely unable to mm -hmm. provide for your daughter. Yeah. And I built another ignorant hardship, like I, the hardship that I built, and I told the truth again. I never learn, I guess. Um, was that I'm living in Mexico. It's hard to live here. Mm -hmm. And this is what I'm going through. And this is the emotional stress that I've experienced and all of these things, blah, 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 blah. This is my hardship. See it? And ladies and gentlemen, I want y'all to know it was hard. It was a hardship. If it, if, if what I went through the first year in Mexico is not a hardship, there is not a hardship that I've yeah. experienced in my life thus far. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. Wow. And their response to me was, you don't have to live there. You can just you leave can your just husband go, there and you, you can, can just come leave home. your husband there and go home. Wow. And so the, the choice that I had to make was, do I choose my marriage, the father of my children, my child at the time, the love of my life, by the way? Yeah. Um, or do I go back to the comfort of my country? And you don't get to have both. So choose. And I was angry about that for many, many years. Many, many, many years. Because why do I have to choose? And I kept thinking, we appealed that choice. It took over a year to get through that appeal. And I kept thinking, I'm going to appeal. I'm going to get the appeal. I mean, I know I am. Just like I thought for sure we'd get the green card. Right. I mean, don't they know who I am? That was my, like, seriously, my resonating thought process. Like, I'm a good girl. And I've made good choices. And I'm an American citizen. And I get to have what I want. Right? <laughs> nope. Yeah, you can. And the answer that I got from the government was, you don't have to live there. So, I chose. I have a blog. I should try to find it. 
More is in Mexico blogspot.com. I don't even know if it still exists. The Mora Mexican event. More is Mexican adventure. Still, still there? Still, yeah, it's still there. That's great. We'll put yeah. it in the Mora podcast Mexican notes. Adventure. Yeah. Well, you can read about me wa- washing my shoes and keep walking. Because when I really found out that I wasn't going back, like really, really new, um, one of the things that just astonished me about Mexicans is how they wash their shoes because the streets are dusty yeah. and your shoes get really grody. And I always had sweaty feet because it's hot, hot, hot in Veracruz. And this, on the day that I found out, I went up to my washboard and washed all my shoes and hung them up to dry and took a picture of them and said, sometimes you don't get what you want, so you just wash your shoes. Keep walking. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Operation Amigos podcast. To hear the rest of the Mora's story, join us next time where we'll hear how their 12 years in Mexico went and how it was that they made it back here. Thanks for joining us.